Good morning, church. Um, For those of you who don't know, um, my family, how do I put this? Um, There are certain people in my family that like cats. Some of you know where this is going. We foster kittens. Yay, kittens, yay. Somebody asked me, how come, you know, you foster kittens? And I said, well, because my wife lets me do crazy things like go to school and dig holes in my yard and all sorts of stuff. So if fostering kittens makes her happy, then the least I can do is to let her foster kittens. Now, the one thing about kittens, the one thing about kittens that you will quickly realize is that kittens have no regard for authority or pecking order in the home. (laughs) If you think that you are in charge, get some kittens. They show up in very odd places. Places that you don't expect and you wonder, how on earth did they get up there? Or in there? Or on there? Or why is it on my head at 3 o'clock in the morning? (laughs) Kittens. Now, for those of you who think that I am just talking about one, no. For those of you who think I'm talking about two, no. Three, still wrong. Four, you're getting closer. Five. We have five kittens. Five kittens. Five kittens. Yay, kittens. Five kittens. Plus, we have two cats, a dog, and David. So you can imagine how our house looks most of the time, right? Kittens do not like to be forced into anything that they don't want to do. However, they are perfectly okay thumbing their nose at you when they want to do something that you don't want them to do, right? In all of this to say, some of you are going, why is he talking about kittens in church, right? There's a point. Stick with me. (laughs) There's this idea, though, that we think that we're in charge, and then nature comes along and says, yeah, not so much, right? The other day, I walked in, uh, just last night, I walked into our closet, and we have one of those... um, uh, they hang from a bar, but it's like the little cubby holes, you know, you put your stuff in. Okay, it's not anchored to anything on the floor, so it swings by itself, and there in the top cubby was a kitten sleeping. <laughs> Scared the tar out of me. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, how'd you get up there? Okay. Yay, kittens, yay. The point that I'm trying to make here is that I have learned over a period of time, and and the kittens certainly helped. I can't change anyone. The church can't change anyone. And I think that the older I go um, and the longer uh, that, that this church is in existence, I've realized that only God working in the human heart can bring about actual change. Only God working in a human heart can, can, can bring about real change. And here's the thing. God doesn't coerce. We have to be open to the change. We actually have to partner with God. Does this make sense? 
And I've thought this um, a lot, but I'm beginning to realize what that actually means and what the implications are for it. And so if you live inside this world that we live in, the one that we, we actually work in and we wake up and we, you know, do our lives in, if you, if you live in this world, then you recognize that every person you know needs some kind of change in their life. Every one of us. Even if you follow Christ, there are still parts of your life that need to be changed. I was talking with a friend of mine who's a very serious Christian, all of his life, sold out follower, pastor, missionary, all these things. And I was talking to him about a family member in his, in, in his immediate family. And he said to me, point blank, God just hasn't sanctified that part of my life yet. All of these years that he's followed Christ, and yet he still has this place inside of his heart that he needs to change. And so we all kind of go through that. If you live this life, you know that you need change and the people around you need change. And sometimes it's easier to know what the other person needs to change more than you need to change. But the point is, is that change is one of those things that we all need. The problem is, is that I can't change anybody. And neither can you and neither can the church. The only thing that can change people, again, is the presence of God in their life in some way. And I think that, you know, here and what we're trying to accomplish as a church is the best way to truly help people is to lead them into the presence of God in some way, hence the, the title of what we're talking about. And we want people to be in the presence of God, not just here on Sunday morning, not just um, at the workplace, but also in the home and in the neighborhood and all of those places that you go, all those places that you live, all those places where you reside is that you would find the presence of God somehow guiding you and leading you. See where I'm going with this? It's really about the presence of God that actually changes us. Because I think sometimes what, what we think is that if we can just kind of stand our ground and grit our teeth, maybe we can change. But you know what? That doesn't really work because I've got this thing inside of me that wants to, to do other things. I like me. I really like me. If I met me, I'd take me out for coffee kind of a thing, right? The problem is, is, is Jesus said I need to love my neighbor as myself. And so we, we all need to make that change. And if you don't agree with that statement, come see me. I will hook you up with some kittens, okay? And you will see just how much you need change because they'll prove it to you. I find myself censoring my language in front of my children when the kittens are around because they're everywhere, right? Anyway, but that's a conversation for my therapist, so not necessarily. The series we're exploring moments in history when, when, when people encounter the presence of God. And we, we started last week with Moses and the burning bush, remember? We were talking about this. Moses was standing on holy ground. He didn't know it, and God had to point it out to him and say, hey, by the way, take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground, right? Holiness, this idea of the, the presence of God, can be very easy to miss. That was kind of the, the, the point that we were trying to make, is that sometimes God is present, and we can still miss it. And so we have to keep our eyes open for it. We have to be open to the fact that God might be there. Uh, this was really interesting. I was talking with my daughter Elizabeth, 
And she said something to me, it was a day or two afterwards, where she just kind of realized some stuff about herself, and we were talking about it, and I just, it was one of these perfect object moments. I'm like, so you're telling me you're standing on holy ground and didn't know it, right? And like, well, yes, that's right. And I'm like, I love that look on her face when she makes that realization, because I make that realization too, and, and so do all of us at some point. And I was going through my own journal last week, and sure enough, standing on holy ground and didn't realize it. Some things that were going on. Saw the same thing in a staff meeting um, last week, Monday. And I love when that happens, when the light bulb goes on. Oh, this is God doing something. It may not look like, I think it's going to look like, and might not even be what I want it to look like, but there it is. There's God. He's moving. He's working. We're standing on holy ground, and we don't even know it. Because holiness can be easy to miss. And so today, what I want to do is I want to go back a little bit further in biblical history, and I want to take a look at a man named Abraham. And there's a particular scene that I want us to look at because God shows up in a really bizarre way. You thought the burning bush was weird? Hold on. It gets a little weirder. And I think this is... Um, an important thing for us to look at because when we consider the entire sweep of the, of the scripture, beginning in Genesis and working our way through Revelation, um, we know that something's wrong. And we read about it in Genesis chapter 3. Human beings choose against God, plunging the world into sin and suffering, and yet God is not content to leave it there. He starts this rescue mission, and for whatever reason, he chooses Abraham and Abraham's family to bring hope and healing to a broken world through this, just this one individual and eventually his family. Now, some of you remember singing the old Sunday school camp song, Father Abraham has heaven and heaven right? You know, yes, see, you're humming it along, right? It's just there. It's like an earworm. You're welcome for that for the rest of the day, right? You're welcome. Yeah. So what I want to do is I want to go into the Bible now, and I want to take a look at Abraham interacting with God and hopefully learn something about his, about his presence. So I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15 is where we're going to be camped out the entire time. And what my, um, uh, my intention here is to read through this entire vignette, this little scene. Uh, then I'm going to uh, make some observations and offer a couple of thoughts on it. So let's, uh, let's begin with chapter 15, beginning with verse number 1. <clears throat> uh, after this, the word of the Lord came to um, Ab Abram, which is Abraham, in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram, who's later changed to Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness, which is a line that we see later in the book of Hebrews. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, 
O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a, uh, and a, uh, with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the uh, great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Geragashites, and Jebusites. Yes, I had to go to seminary to learn those. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord, and we believe it. It's a really interesting scene. And you have to keep in mind that God called Abram, Abraham, out of a city, Ur of the Chaldeans, and he said to him, he says, I'm gonna go, I want you to go to a land. I want you to pick up stakes. I want you to move. It's a land that I'm going to show you. <laughs> now, how many of you would be willing to do that? God says, just pick up stakes and move. I'll tell you when you get there, kind of a thing. Okay. So Abram does this, <clears throat> and he ends up in the land of Canaan, which is what we call modern-day Israel. But he's called out of there, and he's given this kind of assignment just to more or less follow I will, I will show you. And then there's a period of promises that God makes to, to Abram. Uh, you can find them in Genesis 12 and Genesis 13, but essentially it's to make him a great nation, to make him a great nation. So it's not just him, but it's his, his family. And here we have a reiteration of that in verses 1 through 6. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward, uh, your reward shall be very great. And of course, Abram believed the Lord and he counted, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so we have this kind of reiteration of that same promise that, you know, hey, look up at the, the stars. Can you, can you count them? Because that's how many offspring you're going to have. This is to a, a man who has no children at this point. <clears throat> Fascinating. And then there's this exchange that occurs. And I want, I want to see this. I want to explore this a little bit more. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, this is Abram, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How am I to know? Now, if God promises you something, how will I know is a really great question to ask. But I want you to notice it's actually the second question. Because earlier on, he, he asks him about having an offspring, and God answers him, and now he asks him us the second question. One of the things that we've been doing in our staff meetings is um, 
talking about the presence of God, and we're doing it through a methodology of journaling. And we've talked about the importance of the, of the second question. It's kind of like second breakfast, only without the food. Some of you will get that later. The, the whole point is that you have a first question, God will answer it, and there's always a follow-up question to it. And what's the follow-up question? Here we have this, the second question, how will I know? That is a great question to ask. And so if you're experiencing what you think God is speaking to you about something, this is a, this is a fabulous, fabulous question. What, how will I, I know this thing? So there's this promise made, there's an answer, he talks about the stars in the sky, then he makes a second promise, more or less, and he, uh, Abram asks, how will I know? And when God answers, it's a dramatic event. It's a dramatic event. The scene that, we're going, that we've just read is loaded with Jewish symbolism. And so we kind of have to pick this apart a little bit so that we understand it and then see how that helps us in, interpret what's going on within the passage. So notice here in verse 9, he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Okay, so you have these animals. Now, what's fascinating about this, this is early on in the book of Genesis. Later, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, we find out that these are the same animals that God requires for sacrifice at the temple. Okay, so these things, there's foreshadowing here. There's some foreshadowing of saying, these are the animals that I'm finding acceptable. And so, that's what we find Early on, there's a, there's a pattern that's here. And, and if you were a, you know, a first century Jew or whatever, you would, you would catch that right away. You would, you would read through this and go, oh, wait a minute, that's, those are the sacrifices that God requires. So we find these um, as requirements. And then, <clears throat> verses 10, he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each uh, half over against the other. Uh, but he did not cut the birds in half. Okay, wait a second. So let's see, we have a heifer and a ram and a goat and, and we got some birds and we're going to cut them all in half, which just seems a little bit weird, except for the birds, right? We're not going to cut the birds in half. But he says, do you know how much work it takes to cut a heifer in half? Yeah, I know. Everyone's like, ew. You know, there's, no, there's no band sauce, right? Yeah. It's a little weird, that he takes these animals and he cuts them in half and then he splits them apart. Now we're going to get to why here in just a second. Okay, but then look. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Deep sleep. Um, uh, tardama, tardama is the word. It's, it's, it's two words. It's a deep, deep sleep. Or kind of the Dr. Seuss version, as deep a sleep as deep could be. Okay, that's kind of what it means. So whenever you use the double, you, I call it the Dr. Seuss effect. You can call it whatever you want to. But there's this deep sleep. And then I want you to notice this. I want you to catch this because I think this is incredibly important. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Boy, that sounds like fun, doesn't it? I'm going to fall asleep, and then the great and dreadful darkness shows up, Right? So I'm, I'm in this deep sleep, and it comes on them. And then verses 13 through 16, God speaks to Abram about a future 
for his offspring. They're going to be enslaved. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Now, you think about your family. You think about your kids. And somebody told you, hey, by the way, they're going to be enslaved. That's, does that sound great? No, it doesn't. That doesn't make any of us happy. But then he says, but you, you're going to die in peace. Well, okay, that's some consolation. But what about my kids that I don't even have yet? Do you see how strange this is? I mean, this is a bizarre type of thing that's happening to, to Abram. And sometimes I think what happens is when we open up the Bible and we read it, well, it's in the Bible, it's okay. This is a real person who's experiencing real human emotions very similar to the ones that you probably feel too. This has got to be bizarre. You know, in my mind, Abram's going to wake up going, man, what did I drink before I went to sleep? I'm never mixing those two things again. And that's where he is in this deep sleep with this dreadful, dreadful type of darkness around him. And then, when the sun had gone down, it's verse 17, and it was dark. Now remember, he's sleeping. A great and dreadful darkness is around him, and then the sun goes down. Right? You see the progression of this? And it was dark, so it was darker than it was before? Okay. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces of the animal that he had separated. Okay, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, let's, let's take a look at this because there's some symbolism going on here. This idea of a smoking fire pot, um, the term in Hebrew is actually like an oven that you would use for baking. And what's interesting is that when you see this imagery throughout um, the poets, like Psalm and Proverbs, uh, mostly Psalms, and some of, the, um, uh, some of the prophets, the oven, this fire pot, the same word, is usually associated with the wrath of God. Interesting, right? And the torch that's mentioned here, the torch is often a symbol in Jewish literature that re relates to the salvation of God. Do you remember the story of Gideon? Uh, Gideon takes 300 people, destroys an army of, you know, thousands, and what were they armed with? Torches and trumpets, but torches. And so torches are often associated with the salvation of God. So we have the symbol of the wrath of God. We have the symbol of the, the uh, uh, salvation of God passing between the pieces of the dead animals that... Abraham cut in half before he went to sleep. Is this not bizarre to you? I mean, this just seems really, really strange to me. Well, <clears throat> in, ancient, in the ancient world, people would create certain legal agreements. It's called cutting a covenant. And this is the reason why. And what would happen is you would take an animal, whatever the animal was, part of the agreement, would cut it in half. And they would set it aside, and the parties to the agreement would pass through the cut pieces. They would walk between the two. And what they were essentially saying, if I break this agreement, may what happened to these animals happen to me. That's how serious it was. I am passing between, if they are, split, if they are killed and split in two, may I be killed and split in two if I break the covenant and agreement. You see, and this is pretty serious, right? So, you typically did that with one animal. And here God's doing it with how many? One, two, three, four, five, you know, a bunch, I don't know, 
A lot of animals. That's a lot of stuff on the ground. But notice something that's strange. Abram didn't walk between the two as part of the agreement. Who, who went through? God did. God's wrath and God's salvation passed between the animal parts and create, created a covenant with Abram. Now, if God is all-knowing and all-powerful, pretty much we know he's going to make good on his promises, and yet he symbolically did something in a way that Abram would have understood. Abram understood covenant. He understood cutting a covenant. And so he used the imagery that he would understand, and he said to him, I'm making this promise, and if I should not fulfill it, may the same thing happen to me. Yeah, God doesn't have to worry about that. But notice that it wasn't God, it was symbols of God, the wrath of God, and it was the salvation of God. Which is fascinating to, to me because later on, a man named Jesus was sacrificed for all of us and took and bore the wrath of God and he himself was the salvation of God. There is foreshadowing going on all over this passage, right? And what's so interesting to me is that God understood that human beings can't get there. So God would have to make a way for human beings to get there, and that's Jesus. So who passed through? God did. Who broke the covenant? Human beings did over and over and over throughout the entire text. And you know what? You and I, we do it every single day. Sometimes we don't even realize it. But who died on the cross? Jesus did. Which, by the way, was Abraham's offspring. Hmm. commitment that God makes to his people and God alone can actually fulfill it. So the wrath of God passes through, the salvation of God passes through, and all of that culminates in the person of Jesus for you and me. So God showed up in a pretty strange way. But he's in the presence of God in a very real sense. And so the question is, what can we learn from this? What, what can we take from this? What can we actually think about come on, coming up on Monday? Well, here's, here's a couple of thoughts. First of all, <clears throat> it strikes me that the presence of God is an answer to a question. Isn't that great? The word of the Lord came to Abram. And then Abram asks a question, and the word of the Lord comes to Abram, and he asks another question, and then the presence of God is there. And it's usually after the second question, which is interesting to me. Because I've noticed in my own journaling is that after the second question is really when I start to sense that God's actually trying to say something to me. And, and, and when I say that, it's not like I'm hearing the audible voice of God, but there's just the sense that I have that God is trying to speak to me. And um, uh, for me, it probably takes a little more effort because i got a lot of noise in my head. But that second question often precedes whatever type of insight that I'm looking for. So the presence of God is often an answer to a question, very often a second question. 
And the other thing, too, is remember that before he fell into the sleep, um, God told Abram to go get these animals, and Abram actually cut them in half. There was some work he had to do. There's some work on his part. Now, he is not made righteous by the work he did, but there's some work that he had to do for the presence of God to really do what the presence of God, um, what the presence of, uh, for the presence of God to actually um, show up and, and to accomplish what he needs. Does this make sense? So, so ultimately, um, he's got to, to do a little bit of work. He's got to put a little sweat into it, a little sweat equity, and that's when God's presence shows up and takes advantage of the things that, that Abram set aside for, if this makes sense. And then there's this bizarre part of the scene where at sunset, there's this deep sleep in this great and dreadful darkness. Why? Why was there the darkness? Why was it kind of spooky? You know, when you read that, it's a little weird. Why, why was that? Well, I was kind of musing about that and thinking, and the thought occurred to me is that in this case, sometimes the darkness comes so that we can better see God. Sometimes God has to clean out all of the distractions and we feel like the world is closing in on us and everything is dark because it's always darkest before the dawn, right? Well, yeah, that's partially true. In this particular case, God took all of the distractions that Abraham or Abram could actually have. He set them aside, put them to sleep, then gave them the dreadful darkness, and that's when the oven and the torch show up. A friend of mine puts it this way, God is a drama king. He likes showing up at the last minute. Why? Because then there's no doubt it's him. Because how many of you have done this where something's happened, you're like, okay, was that coincidence or was that God? Or, yeah, I suppose it could be a little bit of that. Mm. In this case, when God showed up, it was, you knew this was God. And so sometimes when you feel like things are falling apart, that might be God setting you up for him to move and to get into his presence. In fact, one of the things I would suggest, if you feel like things are falling apart, that's exactly when you need to chase after the presence of God because that's when he's most likely to come. Are you with me? The darkness, the fear, may be God getting ready to move. Maybe it's a job loss. Maybe it's the end of a relationship. Maybe there's some mounting tension between you and someone else. Maybe you feel like you're standing alone on something for some reason and nobody else is there and you feel completely abandoned or betrayed and you're all there by, your, by yourself. That may be God cleaning out any possible reason other than him. Is this making sense? It's not fun, it's not pleasant, it's not enjoyable, and yet it is powerful. And some of you have experienced those moments when it's been like that. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to happen every time, or it doesn't mean that it's going to happen the way you think it's going to mean. And it may not be as dramatic, but the point is, it might be. And so when you're experiencing that, it might be God getting ready to move.